0: Now, if we were to take a quick peek in your fridge, um, I wonder what we would find. And and what would you make of what you see? Uh, is that wilting spinach in your crisper a, a source of hope or, or an object of anxiety? Does it, does it inspire you to create? Or does it slow decay inspire only a sort of sense of existential <laughs> dread? leftovers, uh, abandoned lettuce, slowly losing the will to even wilt, last night's roast potatoes, what what is to be done with them? My next guest is here to help. Tamar Adler is a James Beard award-winning author and food writer, uh, a Vogue-contributing editor, and her latest book, The Everlasting Meal Cookbook, Leftovers A to Z, uh, is a scholarly pen to leftovers. And <laughs> she joins us uh, from the US. Tamar, welcome.
1: Thank you. Thank the, you.
0: That that little quick CV is all very well. But perhaps the most wonderful thing you have done is create the neologism frittataizing. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and, and it's cut in frittataization.
1: <laughs> yes, frittataization.
0: I, I, I think we are, we are getting to the core of your, your set of beliefs around the leftover.
1: I think so. Yeah, that you can. Um, there are all of these mechanisms that we have that are almost like techniques. You know, we talk about dicing, and people know what that is, or julienning, or um, sweating vegetables, or even more commonly making a sauce. You know, and there are actually techniques that you can use um, to turn what you have into something else. And I, I guess, what I was trying to do with this book was um put them into recipe form and then also mm. you know put little explanations of the techniques between the recipes
0: superb concept has anything ever defeated your desire to make it into a frittata <laughs>
1: um frittata no no i mean i <laughs> seriously have made how far do you get? i mean i made i made um potato knish frittatas for this in in the development of this book which i thought was that seemed pretty far, but I also made bagel and frittatas now frittatizing is a universal technique that but I was defeated by some leftovers I did have some like you know what no like no. leftover one to mar zero for sure
0: what 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 is <laughs> in your world of leftovers constitutes a hopeless case what has to <laughs> how far does it have to be there,
1: well yeah degraded? there i mean it it <laughs> So luckily, because I had recipe testers for the everlasting meal cookbook, the bar stayed pretty high. When it was just me developing the recipes, I have to admit, the bar dropped fairly low. And I was like, oh, this is OK. You know, like I so I once I was trying to turn kasha, which is cooked buckwheat, into a bunch of stuff. And um, I turned like leftover kasha, which is not something that everybody has, but certainly some people have. And mm-hmm. I tried to include as much as I could. And I and I made a kasha cake. And something that often happened when I was first developing recipes for the book was that I had to work all day. And so I would not eat a big breakfast because I knew I had to taste what I was making. And then by lunchtime, I'd be starving. So what came out of the oven, I would often think was like kind of okay. And I'd be like, Yeah, I you know, I'll write this up. And then I and then I would write it up. And with the Kasha cake or the Kasha, yeah, it was like a kind of like a sheet cake or daytime cake, um, or quick bread. I sent it out to a recipe tester and they wrote back, you, you wrote in the introduction to this recipe that, that it was mediocre, but nothing could have prepared me for how mediocre it was. (laughs) (laughs) What what refreshing honesty. (laughs) I, so I was, I was defeated by Kasha, almost like just across the board. And then There was also, so bacon fat. I really try, you know, because sometimes you can end up with so much bacon fat and everybody's Mm -hmm. like, save it, save it, save it. And I, so I tried to replace all of the butter in shortbread with bacon fat. And I have it again. (laughs) Yes. So that, right. That's a reasonable response. Jonathan, you're correct. That's, it's gross, but I still did it. And then I, you had to try. Yeah. It was, and it was bad.
0: You might have thought that. it'll be a savory shortbread. <laughs> yeah, case. I thought
1: maybe I'll just have this. Like, I don't know. I mean, thinking about it now, because I can taste it, it was it was really gross. But yeah, I did think I was like it'll be like porky. I was picturing like chicharrones, or
0: yeah, I, I can I, I can get the I can get the thought.
1: <laughs> Basically, I did it, so you don't
0: have to. That, that, we salute you for that endeavor. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it's an interesting thing here. Is there a sense in what you're doing here of? Sort of retrofitting uh, uh, professional cooking techniques. Now, pr- pr- professional cooks—they they par cook, they they blanch, they they have a lot of things ready to go, and use that stuff judiciously. I mean, is is so much? Is, is is there an element here in the thing about dealing with leftovers? Is actually to prepare better?
1: Oh, absolutely! And first of all, the first thing that you said I think is so spot on that a lot of what i wanted to do i'm a former professional cook i mean i guess i'm still a professional but i used to cook in restaurants and one of the things that i took away from restaurants was we do this in restaurants all the time everything that you use when you're cooking what somebody orders in a restaurant at home could be considered a leftover hmm. there's you will have par cooked as you said the the vegetables that you use in the spring vegetable saute you might have parcooked the noodles. You, whatever you're cooking has already, you know, for somebody who orders, the way that you get it out to them in 15 minutes is some of it's been cooked. And so, like I wanted to sort of tell people that that you so when you have something at home that's cooked, all you are in is the same position that any cook in a restaurant is in. And then also when you know that, right, and you know that your leftover is essentially one step closer to having a restaurant quality meal, then you can maybe think of it a little bit differently, maybe prepare it a little bit more simply, but with a little more attention to just the salt, you know, how much salt you put in, how much acid is on it, that you just want it itself to taste good. Because honestly, your favorite restaurant, when you go and you get that, you know, your favorite asparagus dish that you get in the spring, that has been cooked before you even sat down. And then, when you order it, they pop it back on the grill for a moment, so you can cook your own asparagus with mm. that in mind.
0: It, however, requires of the the home cook, you know, a, a sense of that professional discipline, I suppose, or not so much discipline as that sense of professional organization,
1: or maybe just confidence, could knowing be that. that you're gonna, <laughs> yeah, you know, like knowing that you're going to be able to use it again. It's a lot easier to kind of shut out all of the hubbub for the five minutes it takes to to cut the bottoms off the asparagus and cook it in well-salted water. Like if you know, it's not just tonight, right? I'm cooking this whole bunch or I'm cooking two bunches of asparagus and we'll eat some of them just as they are, but these have a future then, you know, and that's, that's more a question like a cook in a restaurant has that confidence because it's their job, right? I, I know I need to make all of this and I'll be turning it all into something else. But if the home cook could have even like a, an eighth of that and think, I'm going to be turning this into something else. It's not just a one, you know. It's so, it's like actually much harder to focus on something when you think it just has one shot at appearing on the table.
0: I mean, this is an arc of thinking that I, I sense comes easily to you, but that that is from a, a lifetime of involvement in food, as you say, professionally in writing. I'm just wondering if we can take that right back to its origin, your, your love of food. How did that originate?
1: My, it's really funny because I have a six year old now and he does not like, he doesn't like the act of eating and he doesn't like food much. And that's exactly Mm. how I was. And I think I'm only okay with it because I, you know, I have this great experience of myself really, really, I found food detestable and eating detestable when I was a child and a real waste of time. And then, but, but I think my mom was a great cook. And so I, even in my resentment of having to spend all that time sitting there i did taste what things tasted like when they were properly properly seasoned mm. and cooked through and like i i kind of had this incredible culinary education just because i was tasting what she made so i knew what good food tasted like um and then when you know like my i time did its job and i ended up really interested in food In my 20s, it turned out it was really easy for me to learn how to get from what was in my head to, you know, what went on the plate because I had already tasted it. I knew what it was supposed to taste like. Um, So I think it was really her and her, my exposure to to good food.
0: It's interesting that it's impossible to ask that question uh, about people's sort of food origin, origin of their food sense without them taking it back to their mother.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, even my mom, her her mother, who's my nanny, she's still alive, um, just in case she happens to be listening to Australian radio, she's great. <laughs> but she she um Hello never cooked. <laughs> yeah. Hi nanny. Uh she never cooked and she really like my mom, you know, never had a hot lunch, even though she came home from school for lunch and and just grew up eating Campbell's. And so she started collecting recipes and cooking for herself when she was like 15 years old. So even that, even her, the place I take it back to was a response to her mother, even though it was a response in the other direction.
0: Much as that's true about the, the, the maternal nature of this this knowledge and sense, the, the professional restaurant world in which you entered is... Um, I mean, typically a world of of chauvinism and unrestrained machismo, a a difficult place to be a woman.
1: I I only realize this actually right now as you're saying it, I think I only worked for women. What a gift. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I started in the kitchen of Gabrielle Hamilton at Prune, and I then weirdly ran my own kitchen before going to Shape Nice in Berkeley, and that was also, um, that's owned and run by Alice Waters. So I I like had this, yeah, a very I think unique experience mm. because I, I never, I've never, I've never worked for a male chef.
0: How did the experience at Chez Panisse shape your 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 life as a cook?
1: Oh, so much. I mean, Alice, when I was when I was leaving Chez Panisse, I actually hadn't even written the proposal for my first book, which I wrote about ten years ago and was called An Everlasting Meal. I just had this feeling that I I was sort of done being. cook, And I wanted to write or maybe go into law or write policy. I didn't know. But I had a meeting with Alice, who was a really, really wonderful mentor. And she said, "Um, sure, you know, you can go to school for policy or you can go to law school. But I worry that if you do one of those things, they'll be teaching you a new language and you already have Mm. a language. And I like that really... Sunk in, and it was probably a month later that I wrote my proposal for my first book. And I've been I've been writing kind of about a style of cooking that is like really the solution to problems instead of like an aspiration. Ever since,
0: but it was it is it is an interesting transformation because I mean, pr- producing food is in itself a, an act of language. The stuff on the plate is. Is, is a language of a sort to then t- to take that to take that process and put it into beautifully composed words to find the language in that language. There's there's something of a gift in that.
1: I mean, for you to say that it's beautiful is really is nice. <laughs> really nice. I I've always felt like I have sort of two symbolic orders, and they're and they're great because both of them can are are symbolic, but also kind of they're not too abstract, and they're food and
0: words. One of the pleasures uh, of this book, apart from the the glorious symphony of your words, <laughs> is that it, it's the, the sentiment of it, the idea of this, it, it aligns with a whole lot of current thinking uh, around you know climate change, consumption, sustainability, waste, uh, the end of days, all of that. But there's there's no hint of of moralising in what you put down. It's just a thing that can be done. There's there's pleasure uh, in, in this austerity, I suppose.
1: Well, I mean that that you know, it doesn't work, right? Like we know this from so many sides, but like shame doesn't like shame and fear can can certainly change behavior in small they can it can change behavior, but it doesn't really change values and what we and beha- and like what we and, and lifestyle, right? I wish the behavior again, but it you know, it can. You can you can guilt yourself into doing something and you can make your child afraid so they won't behave badly. But um that's not really what we have to do, right? Like we have to, we have to want, we have to take, we have to find pleasure. We're pleasure-seeking animals, mm-hmm. and I'm a hedonistic person, and so I think a hedonic argument is, to me, always a more a more useful one, a more practical one. You know, like I don't, I'm it, it just doesn't the the like. You know, diets don't work, right? Diets, the only thing that diets reliably indicate is weight gain. Because you, you've
0: written on this, yes.
1: Yeah, yeah. And I think mean, that's really useful, right? That um deprivation, sort of enforced deprivation, value-based deprivation, whatever, you know, whatever values are or aesthetic or you know, that it's not how it's not how we work. And it's so lucky that it doesn't have to be. That's not, with food, you know, it doesn't, your food isn't worse for using all of anything. Quite to the, con- you know, quite the contrary, it's better. Um, it's, there is flavor that we have been discarding, not because we're bad or because we don't love our planet, but because we haven't learned how to make it delicious or we haven't learned mm-hmm. about the flavor that's in it. And so I just, you know, I think in so many cases, it's like we treat the, we treat the behavior, but that behavior isn't the issue. It's the, it's the, It's a set of tools. It's knowledge. It's, you know, the thing I can't change is how much I live in the U.S. where like work weeks are preposterously long and there's no health care and no child care. So it's like how, you know, I also feel like moralizing inside of our existing system is absolutely hypocritical because nobody has any time or resources or access to anything,
0: and and yet there there is an imperative for us to do better with the food that we bring into our home to ensure that that is treated with holy uh, that we yeah. that we don't create waste,
1: yeah. And so why not, you know, why not why not take advantage of the fact that that it tastes good and that it can make great meals? And they're not like, I'm not talking about slop or like, you know, <laughs> porridge. It's like, this is delicious food called things like minestra and different sabzis and curries and, and, and the fr- frittatization of everything. Like these are great foods. And it's just knowing how you take this thing that mm. you have previously been told is, you know, meaningless and flavorless and turn it into or you know, help it along its natural path toward deliciousness.
0: All right, let's let's get down to about the tin tags. <laughs> <laughs> a, a cry for help has come from the people with the wilted spinach and the hardened marshmallows. Uh, let's start, if we may, with with aging vegetables. Um, that rather sad clump of lettuce in my crisper. What am I to do with that?
1: Absolutely. So that's one of my favorites because it's like very a couple of things first very very clear steps first of all anything that's brown or liquefying you have to cut off
0: <laughs> good tip <laughs> don't keep But you
1: you know i think it's very easy to see it as a whole right okay right like you see the whole thing and you're like some of it but no it's not you know because it's it's different than like a sweater you know it's or, or the a sweater you could you could mend but you know you don't have to you don't it's like cutting off the nose despite the face cut you you which you should do in this instance, but not despite it, to save it. you you um cut off whatever is actually rotting, and then look at what you have left. And it's probably it probably looks like kind of sad greens, although mm-hmm. I loved what you said about lettuce that doesn't even have the will to wilt. I thought that was so lovely. I kind of wanted to see that lettuce. but um, so then you have a couple of options. Take off anything that's liquid, ciao then you can treat it as a cooking green. And I think we forget this often, but really up up until the seventies, lettuce was regularly cooked and it's delicious Mm. cooked. One of the best ways to cook it is just in butter. So you get a hot pan, melt a bunch of butter, either chop up or wedge what's left of the lettuce and wilt it. It's already wilting. So I also, I often feel like we have to like see things where they are on their arc, right? It's not, bright and fresh and crisp anymore. It's it's slumping. It's leaning toward the end. So you don't ask it to be <laughs> the you know, you're not asking it to be the vivifier anymore. You're going, "Okay, you want to slump in butter? I will slump you in butter." So cook it down. Lettuce is so delicious cooked in a little bit of butter. You can add a little bit of lemon zest to that if it has like enough crispness left in it. You can add a little bit of chicken stock too to sort of like braise it, but it all happens quite fast. And then it can be a side dish. It's really amazing on toast. That's like the most delicious thing ever. Another great one is chop it up and use it in deviled eggs.
0: Nice. So good. Uh, you, you have opened the doors of perception uh, here's another one and this is <laughs> the the Marcella hazan tomato sauce onion now for for those who don't know <gasps> oh,
1: yeah.
0: the hazan tomato sauce is a thing of perfection but it requires a peeled halved onion which is then i I hesitate to use the word tomato but uh, disposed of <laughs> yeah. however what should we do with that that peeled halved steeped onion
1: it's so good. So one amazing thing to do with it is to um, chop it up, which is a messy ordeal. So you should use a sharp knife and not worry about what shape it's in. And then start um, a pan of sautéing kale with that. So heat up a pan, add fat to be olive oil or olive oil and butter, and then add when you when you would add like garlic before you add some kale or any other cooking green, um, add the onion. And because it's already partially cooked, it'll cook quite, quite quickly, mm. add a little bit of salt. And it has some tomato on it, so it caramelizes a little bit. It makes the most delicious greens. You just have to think of it as like an improved onion, um, <laughs> which it is. Yes.
0: Beautiful. I'm wondering, too, I mean, we're, we're talking ingredients, technology here. I mean, is, are there uh, essentials here? And this, this is the age of, of air fryers and spiralizers and... and silicon avocado huggers What, what do we really need as a home cook
1: i don't i i i mean i think you only need what you have honestly i the only thing that i ever sort of make that my uh things can't be so so small like the only thing that i ever really criticize in people's kitchens is that there's kind of this imagination that because you're just one person or two people or even three people that you just need like a little cutting board and a little pot and that's not true because ingredients need more room than you do Mm. so you just i don't i don't care what it's made of but you need a big cutting board and um a big knife is better than a small knife and a sharp knife knife is better than a dull knife and a big pot is better than a small pot and so i i don't i don't have any like special tools. I mean, I do have, I have a Vitamix, which I was given for my wedding. <laughs> I love it. And I, I used to always buy cheap blenders because I thought it was so ridiculous to have like a $500 blender. But so no. I would buy a cheap blender and then it would break. And then I would buy another cheap blender and it would break. And uh, I don't know, I was given a $500 blender and I love it. But marriage marriage the was the solution
0: to your, your blender crisis.
1: It was amazing. Yeah. And so I don't, I don't think you need one. I mean, the ones that broke worked great until they broke.
0: Leftover pizza.
1: Oh, amazing. Okay. So a couple of, so my, my very, very favorite one is to give it like a new topping and kind of a weird one. So I love to put leftover Indian food on pizza, on leftover pizza. It's so amazing. I also have a recipe that I love, that I put in the book for leftover pizza crusts because i often serve pizza to like a crowd of 6 year olds who leave their crusts <laughs> and i already am familiar with all of their saliva so i'm not weirded out by it but you could do the same thing just with leftover pizza and it's you sort of make a um, savory bread pudding which i think i call like a sausage pizza bake you just chop up the crusts so or the crusts and the crust on the pizza and you combine them in a casserole with sausage and a little bit of tomato and wine and broth and herbs and it becomes the most delicious it's almost like that is brilliant pizza lasagna it's so good
0: that is brilliant. I, 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 I have, and I, I'm about to confide a terrible secret here: that I have an arrangement um, with our dog, a cocker spaniel, um, insofar as the <laughs> consumption of pizza crusts is concerned, to the point where any time that pizza enters the house, the dog is overwhelmed by excitement because it knows that crusts are coming its way. But, I think
1: that's amazing,
0: Tamar, You I may, you may it. have, you may <laughs> no, you may have ru- ruled a line under this because the <laughs> oh no,
1: Only the dog's going to be so angry with me.
0: The That's such a wonderful idea of the the pizza crust bread pudding with sausage. Uh, Thank you. You're an inspiration, Tamara, and I think our our, our kitchens and our fridges will never be the same.
1: Thank you so much. I've loved talking about this.
0: Tamara Adler, a former chef, an award-winning author and food writer, and her latest book, The Everlasting Meal Cookbook, Leftovers A to Z. You'll find that in shops